You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. Years ago, as a primary care physician, I took care of a 40-year-old African-American man in my office. He died suddenly and unexpectedly during a routine surgery. Due to the nature of his death and my relationship with his wife, I took the unusual step of going to his funeral. The church was but a few blocks from my house, but it might have been a whole other world. There I was, surrounded by 500 Black people, mourning, celebrating, and comforting each other. A whole community inside my community that I had spent decades ignoring, or more precisely, not seeing. We do the same, coincidentally, in the personal finance world. We follow, listen to, and read people who look and sound exactly like us. And we miss out on so much. Today, I'm going to introduce you to another community that you may not understand or relate to, but I hope, after this episode at least, you'll begin to see. Jason and Amanda decided to intertwine their lives both emotionally and financially when they chose each other as partners. In their case, however, their decision turned out to be a tad more complicated than expected. We'll discuss why in a moment, but first, Jason and Amanda, welcome to Earn and Invest. Amanda, tell me how you and Jason first met. So Jason and I first met about five years ago during around Christmas time. We both went to a meetup that was for people who identify as polyamorous, which means people who choose and practice having multiple romantic partners in their lives. So we met at a Christmas event. It was a white elephant Christmas gift exchange. We sat next to each other, couldn't stop chatting. I went with my other partners at the time as well. Yeah, the relationship just sort of bloomed from there. Jason, we've heard the term polyamory before. Tell us about how you discovered the polyamorous lifestyle. Why did it appeal to you? And how did you eventually jump into being part of that community? So for me, I read a book a long time ago, I want to say at least 10 years now, called Sex at Dawn. And it's basically an anthropological study of why humans probably aren't as innately monogamous as we think. And for me, that was sort of a light bulb moment where I was like, oh, this explains so many things for me. Like a really good example would be, I never understood love triangles in movies. Like the the simple answer (laughs) was, I was always like, wait, why can't you... What's stopping you from loving them both? 
you know, that just never really clicked for me and it didn't make any sense. And I kind of remember that, remember that even as a kid. So that's sort of where it started. And then I got separated, I want to say about eight and a half years ago now. And uh, that was sort of my chance to start, you know, living as a polyamorous person, uh, as opposed to a monogamous person. I had been in a marriage for, we had almost made 14 years of marriage and we separated for actually reasons that were completely unrelated to non-monogamy, but we separated and that was sort of my, okay, great. I get to do this the way I want to do it from now on, you know, cause back 14, 15 years ago when I met my, you know, then spouse, uh, it was the default and it was, it was not even clear that there were other options. Jason, help me understand here. It's a difficult question, but it's one I feel like needs to be asked. You mentioned both sexual activity as well as love. Is polyamory about sex? Is it about love? Is it about both? It's way more about the love part than the sex part. So non-monogamy is a really wide spectrum, like a lot of things are spectrums. So for example, there's swinging, which is much more about sex and not so much about relationships. And then polyamory is sort of on the other side where it's way more about the relationships and sex is just sort of a, uh, not a byproduct. That's a really bad way to put it, but it's just a, another piece of the puzzle, right? Like sex is often pretty well intertwined with romantic relationships, but it's not the focus though. Lots of people tend to focus on that when they talk about, or, you know, hear about polyamory or think about it for the first time. So Amanda, when we talk about a traditional relationship, right? We talk about couples or we talk about marriage. Tell me about the organizational units of polyamory. How do people connect? With the caveat that everyone practices polyamory a little bit differently, the way that we practice and the way that most of our friends in the, our community practice is what we call a non-hierarchical system of polyamory. A lot of people come into polyamory already married or decide to marry one of their partners, but that doesn't necessarily give them a romantically different stage of importance in the relationship unit as others. Also, we practice something. So, so my partners all know each other. They're all friendly enough with each other that we could sit down at a kitchen table and have dinner together. That's called kitchen table polyamory. And some people practice where the partners don't want to know each other and don't want to know details or anything. And that's more parallel. But the way that we practice and most of our friends and community practice is more of a kitchen table setup where my spouse and my other partner and Jason all know each other. They get along with each other. We have dinners and parties and game nights and things like that with each other. Amanda, you just used the term spouse. Is that a term you would use for all of your partners or one specifically? I use that term specifically because I married my spouse again uh, when I was, you know, 10 years ago, before we opened up our marriage, before we decided to go down the polyamorous route. It, in that way, it's just a delineator of um, the fact that we have a legally binding agreement, right? That my spouse gets health insurance benefits through my work, you know, all the other things that come with being legally binding as a spouse. But, and, and she'll say this as well, we don't see each other's relationships as inherently stronger, better, more secure than any of our other relationships that we have. And I also want to just clarify here, you have a set of partners, but those partners are not involved with each other on that level, right? They may be friendly, but they're not actually in relationships together. 
Yes, correct. It does get a little complicated when that changes. It's not like there's rules or anything like that. My partners are usually welcome to do whatever they would like to do as long as there's honesty and openness with everyone. When my spouse and I did open up, we did both date the same person for a while. And so it was the three of us in a relationship all with each other which was wonderful. And, you know, it worked. It was very tricky. If you can think about everything that comes with just having one relationship, just double that. And it's, you know, a lot more of the same types of complications that come with one, but it was, it was lovely right now. That's not the case right now. Everyone is dating and no, none of our partners happen to be dating each other. Jason, I want to talk later about some of the legal aspects and having the marriage between some partners and not and how that plays out. But before we do, I I think maybe the easiest way would be to have you both tell us about your partners. So maybe Jason, could we start with you and tell me kind of how many partners you have and give me a little information about each of you and and what your lives look like right now? Sure. Um, Mine's relatively simple. (laughs) Amanda is my only partner at the moment. I've had more than one partner at a time before. As Amanda said, that can, you know, when, when you double or triple up, that definitely adds some uh, complications or, you know, just there's extra stuff to deal with. But the only other thing I would say at this point is I have a kid and parent-child relationship is a lot of time, energy, and investment, right? So a lot of time polyamorous folks like to note that uh, love may be infinite, but time isn't. So, <laughs> so from my perspective... Between Amanda and my daughter, I already have a good amount of time spent. And Amanda, do you want to talk about some of your relationships? Yeah, happy to. Aside from Jason, my spouse, we've been married for 10 years now. She lives separately from me. We we were living together up until recently where we had to move and we couldn't find a good affordable place for us to still live together. We were living with, I was living with her and her partner. And it's a tough market here in California to find a place that can accommodate all three of us. So yeah, so she is living right now with her other partner and we still see each other a couple of times a week for our dates we, you know, talk all the time. We're still very close with each other. We celebrated our anniversary together this year. She has three other partners aside from me. So that keeps her also very happy and busy. And then my other partner currently, his name is James. He, um, well, what to say about James? Is there anything in specific? <laughs> no, just trying to get a feel for kind of what this lifestyle looks like for you. So you have, you have three partners in total right now. Is that correct? Three partners in total. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Jason, as, as I'm watching Amanda talk about her other partners, you're laughing and smiling and nodding your head. I mean, is there room for jealousy in this space? Cause it would seem to me that it would almost have to be there at times, right? That's a classic question. Sure. There's jealousy on occasion, but it's way more about, trying to think how to say this. It's more like, Hey, you know, it's going to happen. It's better to have tools to handle it and deal with it rather than let it control your life for your, you know, reactions. So yeah, on occasion, there's some jealousy. Like if Amanda's off doing something fun with one of her partners and it's like, Oh man, I wish I was doing that with them. That's more of a FOMO thing than a jealousy thing, but you know, that can happen on occasion. And I'm sure it happens in reverse on occasion too. Right? Like, 
Amanda and I were on a trip recently, and I'm sure everybody else wishes they were able to come, <laughs> for example. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. Jealousy is like one of those things that it's definitely hard mode on relationships and like being prepared for it is super important, right? Like never want to expect that like you're not going to be jealous or whatever. For me, jealousy and envy and insecurity was a huge issue when we first opened up, when me and my spouse first opened up. And it's it's amazing the the feelings that we get and and why we get jealous when we get jealous, I think is the biggest thing is, am I jealous because I don't want my partner to be happy with another person? No, I'm jealous because I'm not the one that's providing that that happiness to my partner. Well, well, then what do we do with that? What are ways to mitigate that? Oh, I can plan more things with my partner. I can talk to my partner about it and maybe see how excited and, and inevitably their excitement isn't contagious and infectious and and every single time you get that jealousy, that insecurity that comes up, you get better and better and better at dealing with it. So it is a lot of self-care, building self-confidence, building self-security in your in myself and learning my own hobbies and my own friendships and you know, my own ways to 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 mitigate those feelings when they come up. So like right now, James is off in Europe. And so yes, there's a lot of FOMO, which is fear of missing out while he's all traveling and having a wonderful time. But, but again, I can, I can be excited for whenever he gets back and and all of that that comes with it. Jason, as I listen to you and Amanda, I, I get the strong feeling that you know who you are. That's one thing, but then there's family and friends. Tell me, Jason, about the reaction from family and friends when you went public with the fact that you were living this lifestyle, that that in fact, your partner had other partners. Yeah. So let's see. My parents were definitely surprised. Took them a little while to get used to the idea. And I know they're still kind of worried from the, hey, you're not doing the traditional, you know, get married, have kids, stay married forever, you know that sort of support system that you get from a from a marriage and a you know and a partnership like that strangely enough that's sort of like the fi thing right where a lot of people are like hey wait you're doing something really different and that brings up really strong emotions and i'm going to get all kind of you know judgy about you and your choices in in this aspect so it's funny non-traditional communities like this tend to have a lot of similarities I'm, i have found but so my parents are ultimately supportive uh, we do dinner with Amanda and my parents basically as much as we can. I'm really lucky that they live here. My sister <laughs> was more of the kind of judgy type, unfortunately. And I don't think she meant to be. It's just more of a, that's how it popped out. You know, I kind of got like reflex questions that were, again, I don't think they were intentionally judgy, but they were. And, you know, that that's to be expected. I'm what I call soft out at work, which is to say I don't actively hide it but I also don't trumpet it, right? The polyamory is not a protected classification in any way, shape, or form. So I figure I'll sort of split the difference there. Luckily, I work at a pretty well, you know, very well-run and company full of good, smart, you know, capable people. And it's never really been an issue. Amanda, tell me about your upbringing. Were your parents a little more conservative? And if so, how has this conversation gone with them? Yeah, they're very conservative. When to the point where, um, you know, growing up, 
I wasn't supposed to date until I was married. You know, it was, it was a very conservative upbringing. So my, my parents are, I have to give them credit for being so incredibly patient and open-minded with me. And I think that just being patient, both of us being patient with each other has really helped our relationship a lot. When I first came out to them as being polyamorous, it was while I was taking them on a vacation. And so, you know, it was very like a massage the idea in, in, a, in a good way. Um, but it took them a couple of years to really understand that number one, that me and my spouse were not divorcing, that nothing was wrong with our relationship, that we decided to pursue this lifestyle, um, that it was making both of us happy. And the fact that introducing more people into our lives um, was actually such a benefit, that not, not a harm. It didn't take away. It just gave us more people to take care of each other, to support each other. Um, there's a lot of love in our lives. Um, uh, last year I had an injury that I needed surgery for. And my, my mom was so worried that she flew out from across the country to see me only to be surrounded by all of my partners who would take shifts, taking care of me and cook food for me and all of that. So they've, they've really come around to it. Every time they call, they ask about each and every one of my partners by name and, uh, and and as far as coming out in other ways, coming out to friends, they've been very supportive of us here. Um, we haven't really had any trouble or anything with there. I would say that I similarly with Jason, I'm soft out at my workplace. It's not something I actively try to hide, but it is something that I don't advertise that I'm very careful about who finds out, you know, there's definitely some people that have expressed more conservative views um, where I work. But but even with that, I've been at my company long enough, have enough seniority that I don't have to worry about the fate of my job. Um, so yeah. it's, it's uh, lots of pluses and minuses, but we're really lucky to have supportive families. So I want to talk a little bit about the ties that bind people together in a polyamorous relationship. We've clearly talked about the emotional and certainly as you were talking about that surgery and people being there for you, really, there seems like a real bond of, of family there. What we haven't really talked about yet is the financial bonds. Talk to me a little bit about how the polyamorous community looks at financial bonds between partners. Are there different models and how do people start to address those, Jason? Is it straightforward? Uh, no, it's not. Since uh, marriages assume two people, and you know only two people, and marriages come with a lot of uh, financial and legal benefits and protections and things. So there are ways that we really haven't looked into yet, but there are ways to set up other financial arrangements to help with. For example, like maybe using an LLC to buy a house if you wanted to buy a house with a partner or partners. Um, there are things like that, that one can do to set things up differently. Um, at the moment, Amanda and I, uh, as far as I know, everybody, except your spouse, ha mm -hmm. we all have separate finances. So, um, and even you and your spouse have mostly separate finances at this point. So that's one thing we haven't entwined too much. Um, that's actually often a, a pretty big indicator in the polyamory world. Um, 
Amanda earlier mentioned non-hierarchical, which is to say um, there's not like a primary partner and then secondary partners that have like lesser rights or lesser, you know, time investments or whatever. Some people do do polyamory that way. We don't. But one of the big indicators, honestly, of non-hierarchy is to have relatively separate finances amongst various partners, unless there's a really compelling reason. Like, uh, like Amanda mentioned earlier, her spouse gets medical coverage through Amanda's work. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, classic U.S. really mm-hmm. centric problem, but uh, definitely potentially super important. Uh, so it depends on the group, obviously, but the way we do it is pretty separate. Amanda, do you find that many people in your community do at least have a primary marriage bond with one of their partners just for those kind of financial and legal aspects that it affords them? Is that pretty accepted in your community? Uh, So I would say that there's a good amount of the community that has a spouse. Um, I actually don't, I, I don't, I wouldn't say that it is for that reason specifically. I'd say that maybe it's maintained for that reason. Like a lot of people come into polyamory already married um, and already having those benefits. And so maybe they maintain it for that. But I remember I was out one time and someone was asking me, well, who do you, who do you decide then who you're going to marry of all your partners? And I jokingly said, you know, it's whoever needs the health insurance. Um, so <laughs> so I, I think that that is, uh, you know, the strategy and, and my spouse and I have, have frankly had the discussion that if we ever, if any of our partners were in dire straits and really needed something like we would have to dissolve our marriage, remarry, you know, figure out how to do things, which, you know, is a whole conversation. Um, but fortunately, my spouse and I have really good communication as you know, as far as all of that is concerned. So my spouse and I at this point would not disentangle our, fi- like, you know, get divorced um, just for like relationship romantic reasons. Um, we're staying together because we both benefit from that in a lot of ways, just legally. The only thing like, J- like uh, Jason mentioned, as far as shared finances and responsibilities there, when we first opened up, we still had everything shared, our bank accounts and everything. And then we found as I had my own separate relationships and as she had her own separate relationships, there were conversations about where the money was going and where it was being spent on my dates versus on her dates. Um, And we found at that point, it was much easier to just separate everything out. We each had income, so we didn't, we weren't so reliant on each other. We figured out how to manage rent and utilities and all of our shared expenses. And that's made our lives much, much better since since we did that, it doesn't feel like we're not as close or anything, but there is a little bit of decoupling that has to happen for that. That sort of thing works great, even if you're not polyamorous, right? Like if you're having money issues with your spouse, it's a pretty easy, well, I wouldn't say easy, but it's a pretty good thing to consider, right? Splitting your finances a bit, right? Maybe still have a joint account for shared expenses, but having separate accounts so that you don't have to like monitor each other's spending or feel like you have to, or, you know, feel that that's happening, right? That's a really easy thing to do regardless of your relationship status. If spending or, you know, money type things is a stressor. Amanda, talk about life insurance. How do you decide who your beneficiaries are going to be? That's a great question. Um, so, uh, 
right now my beneficiary is my spouse. Um, just because again, that's kind of like what we inherited into this. Um, I think deciding on beneficiaries beyond that really depends on the strength of the relationship as it goes. There's no hierarchy, but every new relationship is, is different. Um, you know, as you're getting to know someone in your first few months of dating, obviously you wouldn't have them as a beneficiary. So at what point does any relationship get to the point where you trust that person, you care about their life and their future. Um, so at the point that I'm at now, I've been with Kelly for 10 years, Jason with five for five years, James, uh, for three years. And if I could, I would choose to split it all evenly, like among the three of them, but who knows that might change relationships come and go, but yeah, that's, (laughs) that's sort of where we are now. And it's funny, Kelly and I, um, you know, had this discussion recently where we were talking about, well, what does the future look like? Have we thought about that? And we're both very like, we'll be flexible. We'll take it as it comes. We don't know what the future is going to be. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. it comes and goes, but yeah, that's, that's a good question. (laughs) And Amanda, at least as of now, there's no having children in these relationships, right? So no one's actively getting pregnant, et cetera, or are they, and how are you managing that financially? So by personal preference, I'm child-free and so are all of my other partners, which makes that a lot easier. Um, And because I don't want children and I don't have a desire to be a parent, I don't foresee that being an issue with any of my other relationships. Now, let's say my my spouse's partner wants to be a parent and have kids and and go forward from there. Well, they would definitely, that that would change everything. But like, like anything in life, it's a conversation. It's, you know, something that we would all have to sit down and talk about. Uh, But I don't see that happening. Both me and my spouse are pretty squarely in the child free (laughs) camp. And Jason, we're going to talk in a moment about financial independence and how it does or doesn't relate to your polyamorous community. But first and foremost, I just want to ask one further question. Do you think there are any economic advantages to polyamory? Is there anything that maybe serves this community more financially than than everyone else? Just because we do polyamory ROA, which is everybody's living separately for the most part, uh, doesn't mean that's the only way to do it. Like uh, there's actually a joke that I've seen going around, uh, monogamy in this economy, uh-huh. <laughs> right? Um, like there are definitely ways to share expenses, you know, um, like this silly classic example, right. Is like one person gets Netflix, one person gets Hulu and one person gets mm-hmm. Apple TV plus and one person gets another streaming service, you know, I, that sort of thing can, go all over the place. A a really good example is Amanda and I often split stuff from Costco runs because, you know, living alone, I mean, I have my kid half time. So even one and a half people, stuff from Costco is usually a lot. So, you know, anything perishable, especially is an easy split, right? So there's lots of weird little benefits that, um, you know, that you can either, you know, work in or that just sort of naturally Mm -hmm. occur. Um, Yeah. We have we have built-in house sitters and dog sitters yeah. in our community, and um, you know my car broke down. Which of my three people am I going to call to help me? So in that way, I think we can mitigate a lot of the little emergency, little oops um, expenditures since since we have that community built in. Yeah.
We are talking to Jason and Amanda. They are part of the polyamory community, and we are discussing how they balance their finances as well as their lives. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Hey, everybody. Just a quick reminder. Today is Monday, and on Thursday from 4 to 7, I will be in San Diego at BJ's and Mission Hills. We are doing a Taking Stock book launch, and I'm excited to see you there. There will be a book provider. Books will be available. I'll be signing them. We will hang out drink beer, and eat pizza. I would love to see you there. The easiest way to sign up is just go to earnandinvest.com slash San Diego. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash San Diego. Hang out with me at BJ's Thursday at 4 to 7 this week. We would love to see you there, but make sure you do go sign up by going to earnandinvest.com slash San Diego. Now back to the show. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Jason and Amanda, who are part of the polyamory community. They are also interested in financial independence, and we are talking about how they balance their finances as well as their lives. Jason, tell me how you discovered the financial independence community. I was really lucky. Uh, One of my first real professional jobs was at a discount stock brokerage, so I got a lot of sort of beginner stock level information, learned about index funds way back when. Um, so I was sort of doing part of FI way back when, but back then everybody was like, if you save 10% of your income, you're doing great. That was sort of the, the <laughs> accepted wisdom. Uh, then I found Mr. Money Mustache one day. Uh, I think some other blog I was reading pointed something out. It was a totally separate blog. It wasn't about finances. And it had a link to MMM uh, about him, I think, taking his kid out of school for a while or something. Anyway. Uh, so I was like, oh, this guy's interesting. Uh, let me read some more. And yeah, a couple days later, you know, very bleary eyed. <laughs> I was like, holy crap, this is amazing. Again, when I separated, that was a time to start doing things a little bit more my way. You know, a classic issue in FI is, you know, the reluctant spouse. And again, my my ex-wife is a wonderful, wonderful person. Just that wasn't her desire. And that's fine. Uh, but for me, it was like, a, okay, great. Now I can like really optimize things and like cut brutally on the things that I just don't care about, and uh, you know, g- start from there and see you know see where I'm going to get to. Um, the other thing that was really exciting, as I realized, 
time is like your most valuable asset. And I was already pretty late in the game, which is fine. I, I'm, uh, I just turned 49 recently. Uh, I found MMM about eight years ago, maybe seven years ago. Don't remember exactly. Anyway, but I'm super excited to be explaining all this to my daughter and to help her figure out the right path for her to be as FI as possible as early as possible, you know, but without to, to use a term from your book to not be the first brother about it any more than necessary. And she's pretty excited, which is awesome. <laughs> so Amanda, Jason mentioned the reluctant spouse. I feel like we should be talking about the reluctant spouses possibly in this community, <laughs> but so he introduced this concept to you. If, if that's the case, you know, how did it sound when you first heard him talking about financial independence? So, yeah, he introduced it to me five years ago um, at a time where I don't think I was ready to hear it. Number one, because it was always tied in with the retire early concept. And here I am loving my job. I had just gotten done with my training period and I'm like, retire early. No way. Like I want to work until I like I'm 68 years old, you know? And, (laughs) and so, Oh, this isn't for me. I don't need to worry about all of this. Um, I'm just going to pay off my loans. Like I don't need to worry about this. And so I did. And I spent a few years of the, you know, first years of the relationship and he's quietly in my head, like, let me know when you're ready. Let me know when you're ready. Finally, like in the past year, especially after my debts are paid off, I was like, okay, what is this FI thing after all? Um, And in the past month or so, I've had a nice little whirlwind of information. And at this point, I'm at the point where I'm bought into this and I've talked to my parents about it. And initially they were like, well, what are you talking about? And well, now my mom's totally on board with it too. And she's like doing her own investing <laughs> and for the first time ever. And then talking to my spouse about it. So that was that was a big deal. We still have a shared investment account. And and so then I had to present this whole idea of of you know FI, which it's really hard to make it not sound like a cult of thinking. <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, she took it very, very well. And now I just need to load her up with all of the books and everything to, to read up about it. <laughs> so Jason, I, I could almost see you as bringing financial independence to the polyamory community. Do you see this spreading throughout the partners? I mean, so you've now told Amanda, Amanda has told her spouse, maybe they start passing it on to the other partners. Do we have like a polyamory financial independence thing going on? I mean, it's entirely possible. Man, there's some jokes that could be made there, but I'm not going <laughs> to <laughs> One thing that I know FI sort of struggles with, and some of the community is more in tune with this than others, but like there can be a real privilege, like economic privilege gap between FI people and non-FI people. And there can be in polyamory as well. Like it may not be the RE part, especially, but at least the concepts, right? Like the, you know, to, to kind of quote Paula Pant, you know, spend less than you earn, you know, save and invest the rest, that sort of thing. Those things make a lot of sense when you have a comfortable life, but if you don't, that can be really hard. So like, I think it's one of those things where it, it will, it could definitely permeate the polyamory community, especially since we're already kind of different, right? Uh, thinking differently, just like FI people think differently. 
but I could also see some potential roadblocks or at least, you know, places where it's going to kind of hit reality. And that's where I probably need to go educate myself a little bit more uh, on the, you know, how does FI work for people who don't, who aren't super high earners. How, Amanda, is the polyamory community with money in general? Can we generalize at all about how people in this community tend to look at money? Are they spendthrifts? Are they savers? Is money a conversation that people want to have in this community? I think it's probably just as diverse in the polyamory community as it is in the general community. I wouldn't say that there is like, you know, a a preponderance of one type. Um, I will say that a lot of people in the polyamory community are already kind of outside the box thinkers. Um, So there's a lot of, at least our community, there's a lot of artists. There's a lot of, you know, writers and streamers and um, so who make income in really different, wonderful, creative ways. And so in that way, I think that a lot of them probably would be open to the FIRE lifestyle mindsets, uh, all of that. But as far as like high earners, low earners, it's really, and the spend thrifts versus not, it's, it's, I think it's pretty diverse. Mm-hmm. Jason, would the financial independence curriculum be different for the polyamory community uh, above and beyond what it is for everyone else? Ooh, uh, I don't think it would be all that different. For example, right, as a polyamory, practicing polyamorous, you really need to be good at communication to be successful. So out of the gate, at least you'll be better at discussing money, money related topics, which are traditionally pretty, uh, potentially thorny, right? Depends on the relationship and the people involved and stuff. With our partners, me and Jason and me and James, especially, um, every month we do this, uh, relationship check-in where we have like an agenda that we set of everything that's going on in our lives. And money is one of the ones that we talk very frankly about, because like Jason said, if you're not communicating everything, then it's much harder for multiple relationships to work out. Jason, it hits me that this concentrating on communication and openness that seems to be a big part for you guys of the polyamory community really would lend itself very well to the financial independence community. This ability to meet and talk and to work through problems I think it would be very beneficial for everyone, regardless of of what community you're part of. Um, So it's very interesting for me to hear you guys talk, because I think your conflict resolution strategies are kind of at that ultra mature level. And I think we could use a lot of those kind of in our financial conversations. In fact, maybe that's part of our problem when it comes to dealing with finances, because we don't we don't communicate on that level. Yeah. Uh, one thing I always like to say is most skills that you need for polyamory actually help regardless of your relationship structure. I mean, everybody always talks about how communication is so important in any romantic relationship, right? Um, it's, I think it's just that with monogamy, you have some established defaults that you can fall back to when, like, when something's unclear or ambiguous or whatever. Uh, and in polyamory, you kind of can't do that in almost all cases. And I think actually that's probably similar in FI as well, right? Like you're doing something non-standard. So you need to be better at communicating about what's going on and what your plans are. And, you know, uh, and one other thing that comes to mind is we talked about flexibility previously. Um, That's really important for polyamory, but it's also pretty important for FI. 
we like to talk about things like the 4% rule, but it's really more of a guideline. And that assumes like you do some intelligent things rather than just mindlessly draw down 4% every single year without fail, regardless of the external circumstances, right? So being flexible <laughs> and like in this case, if you have a spouse or whatever, you'd also need to be communicating what you're going to be flexible about. I think these things can definitely help each other, both just the skill sets for one are really important for the other. Amanda, tell me what you think is going to happen to polyamory here in the United States. Do you think it's going to spread or grow as a community? I think it will. I really hope that it does anyway. The only window I have, uh, or I mean, you know, we have a few windows into it. The media is definitely giving us more and more examples of non-traditional relationships, whether that's queer relationships or, you know, queer with kids, queer without kids. And it's nice to see that. And I only see that representation growing. And with more representation, more people are feeling less pressure to make the same decisions that were all, you know, laid out to them. So if someone identifies as non-monogamous early on, there's a lot less pressure for them to, okay, nope, just squash that, go into the monogamous mindset, because that's the only thing. And they can hopefully be more free to experience everything else. And also, I don't know, we talked to your daughter seems uh, to be a good um, example. <laughs> like uh, all her friends are, you know, seem interesting and queer and exploring different types of lifestyles, you know, and choices. So I feel like it is going to be something that we see more, especially something that we see more represented in the media. Um, hopefully stuff like this helps that too. Jason, what do you see as the biggest misconception right now about polyamory in, in the general populace? I mean, the classic one. So there's a really wonderful polyamory podcast called Poly Weekly. Uh, they've been doing it for a really long time. They have an amazingly huge back catalog and it's wonderful for a beginner or anybody who's just, you know, interested or even an old, old hand who, uh, you know, might pick and choose their episodes, but like their tagline at the end is always, it's not just about the sex. And that's really the biggest misconception because everybody um, just seems to glom onto that first. So I would say the big misconception is for polyamory in particular, it's way more about the relationships and the emotions and, than the sex. And Amanda, what do you think the biggest challenge to the community is going forward right now? I would say that it's difficult to be open. So being polyamorous, um, I can't have a lot of the same conversations with my coworkers that everybody else does, right? Everyone talks about their their families and their kids and what they did over the weekend and their vacations and everything like that. And especially when I first started working, I felt like that was something that I had to hide and keep under wraps. And, and I think that's the difficulty of being polyamorous is feeling like like you're going to be judged for the lifestyle that you have and the decisions that you've made. And that that pressure of judgment, you know, feeling like you have to hide something that should be a wonderful, beautiful part of your life is, that's definitely difficult. Yeah. And like I mentioned earlier, that's not a protected status. So that is definitely something you can get fired for if you're in the wrong part of the country or the wrong part of the world, or, you know, just working for a company that doesn't like it. So I wanted to thank you, Amanda and Jason, for being on the show today. As I listen to you describe polyamory, I hear three things, right? I hear people who love each other. I hear people who are incredibly flexible and willing to adapt. And I hear people who communicate really well. 
And what I love about that is I think that's exactly what makes you also good at your finances, whether that's financial independence or whatever model you look at. Using those qualities, you pretty much can create the life you want and certainly create the financial life you want. And it's nice to see how these two communities come together. And as you were saying, being part of one non-traditional community probably makes it easier to be part of another. So this idea of being part of the polyamory community and then moving over and being part of the financial independence community is probably a little bit easier of a move. I wanted to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life. And as opposed to asking where people can find you, I'll ask where can we find more information about polyamory? So Amanda, let's start with you. What is up next in your guys' lives? Well, uh, going into the holiday season, I have some more like travel plans um, with each of my partners. Me and my spouse um, and her partner are going away for a trip. You know, when we think about what's up next, um, whether big, small, big, you know, long term, short term, like I said, we're all so flexible. We've had so many things change over the past three years that it's impossible to say, you know, what are like big things that are coming. It's it's a nice way to enjoy each of the little small moments and the, the trips, the date nights and everything that we have together. Um, and then just just kind of take things as it comes. So yeah, some some wonderful vacations that are planned, wonderful trips together. We're all going on a huge trip together next March for a week. So um, that'll be wonderful. So yeah, just yeah, all good things. And Jason, if people want to learn more about polyamory, what are some good ways for them to do that? I'm going to recommend another podcast. Uh, Multi-Amory has been around for a good long while. Also the Poly Weekly podcast that I mentioned earlier. Those are both good. Multi-Amory has a pretty darn good website. Uh, in fact, the relationship checklist that Amanda mentioned earlier, it's called a radar. I forget what, why the acronym is that. It's based on a, the software scrum setup. Uh, but anyway, they have an article there with details about how to actually do these radars, if that sounds interesting to you. But those are two really good starter resources to uh, get some ideas for what this is about and whether it would be of interest to you. And like I said, even if you're monogamous and you're like diehard monogamous and you've chosen that and you're very comfortable with it, the skills that you need for polyamory translate perfectly into monogamy as well. So, you know, if you're interested in learning stuff uh, when it comes to relationship skills, they're amazing. One more resource that I wanted to add in there is um, my partner, James actually has his own podcast, which is actually very similar to yours, Jordan, where he interviews people who are practicing polyamory. He also interviews therapists and other specialists, you know, that have that kind of specialty in non-monogamous relationships. And so that podcast is called Practicing Polyamory. And uh, he's unfortunately not doing new episodes right now, but he's got a back catalog of a hundred and some odd episodes. That's really nice, I think, for introduction, just to see what people's experiences are like. And I cannot believe I didn't add that on my list. <laughs> Holy crap. Yes, thank you. Yeah. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Jason and Amanda. That's a wrap. Awesome. All right. So I keep things rolling as you know, I really, you know, so what I learned from this, 
which is something I kind of had an inkling of, but I think a lot of these skill sets you're talking about that you've learned through a practice in polyamory are just amazing for life, right? That's one, but probably also amazing for dealing with your finances and especially dealing with your spouse and finances, right? Because um, I think we could use a lot of these communication skills and the ability like I was really just interested in the way you talked about jealousy and it's really I think that's such a big problem in people's lives even when it's not like sexual relationship jealousy maybe it's jealousy of achievements it's jealousy of lots of other things um and I'm just I'm amazed at how much there's an overlap between our you know love lives and our financial lives and uh so it was really interesting to talk to you guys about that because I think you are probably very practiced at doing this right because you have multiple relationships you have to be very very careful and be very thoughtful about how you manage them yeah i think conversations about money and relationships can be very similar in that they're both they can both be very emotionally charged and vulnerable things to talk about and loaded with judgment if you approach it the wrong way so yeah, we have had to learn a lot about nonviolent communication, about using I statements and like and practice the heck out of that so that when we have these conversations, we're not focused on just getting our frustrations out like, oh, why did you spend all this money on this expensive date, you know? Um, but we're more focused on here's how this made me feel, how can we reach a solution, how can we compromise? So yeah. I think it is a bit of a superpower to learn that communication skill and it definitely helps with talking about finances and planning finances too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> is this, do you think the whole, the polyamory community as a whole, or is it this just you guys? Cause you're on top of things. Yeah, we're, we're actually the best, um, <laughs> the best, best of all polyamory. Yeah, we're the standard of, no, <laughs> I mean, fortunately we have all these resources um, to help us along yeah. the way. Yeah. So one thing I didn't mention in the main episode that I kind of meant to bring up is um, the overlap, the Venn diagram of nerd and polyamory is pretty, there's a lot of overlap there and like nerds like to, you know, learn about new things. So sometimes yeah. That sort of training, I don't know, inclination is probably a better way to say it. That tends to help a lot, right? Yeah, we've so. read the books. We've listened to the polyamory podcast. Exactly. We, yeah, and worked on it. Yeah, literally when I started, my first thing wasn't get on the dating apps. It was go read some books and figure out WTF this actually is and how to do it without just completely mm -hmm. crashing and burning You know, out of the gate. That, mm -hmm. that was sort of my starter. Do a lot of people crash and burn? I mean, do you see people come in and out and say, oh boy, I can't handle this? Like they come in and they think they can handle it and they can't? Oh yeah. Uh, there's plenty of sort of, there, there's a common phrase in polyamory, which is something along the lines of uh, relationship troubles. Let's solve it by adding more people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah people definitely crash and burn going into it for yeah. the wrong reasons. And yeah. Yeah. There, there's a, there's another post and I'm going to get the exact details wrong, but if you Google the gist of it, you'll probably find it. It's called something like the single biggest mistake you make in opening up your relationship. And the basic thing is like not doing some basic research and learning the common pitfalls that mm -hmm. most new couples, especially couples opening up, uh, run into. So. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people mistake it for what you were saying, which is swinging, which is opening up yourself yeah. sexually versus you guys are talking about very different. You're talking about mm -hmm. not only physically, but emotionally actually creating these you know, in a sense, equal partnerships, and you may have multiple of these equal partnerships. And that's a whole different thing than saying, hey, we want to have a little fun, or we want to let someone else into our relationship. And I think people misconstrue that quite a bit. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I mean, getting to know you two, like that would not compute of your personality. And when I know of you like that, it hits me as a completely different thing. Like, I guess as you qualified it as nerdy, I like you, I feel like you guys are my people, right? We're all kind of nerdy. We like to read about things. We're interested in finances. And so it, it, it definitely wouldn't be my conception coming into this, right? Until I met you and knew you. I would definitely be way on the other side. So I could imagine there are some people who are trying to enter this community who don't really understand what it is at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And it's just like anything. If you do the work and kind of figure it out and do it the right way, then uh, I guess that's the same with FI too. You know, if you just start investing willy nilly in things that, you know, don't make sense or, you know, <laughs> so, right, exactly right, right. There's a lot of pitfalls that you can fall into no matter what. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I do also think that you guys have a lot to add to the financial independence world in the sense of conflict resolution and open communication about finances, because I suspect that you guys are, you know, on that samurai ninja level of <laughs> being able to of being able to do that versus the rest of us probably are a little bit more at the novice level. Um, and how that can translate into financial conversations is just so obvious and clear, right? Yeah. Right, Definitely. Well. Although I will say I I try very hard not to have a swelled head about it. I always figure there's more to learn or mm-hmm. it could always be better, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I like to try to come at it with the uh, beginner's mindset as opposed to the, oh, I already know all this. You know, that oh. that's usually a recipe for falling flat on your face. <laughs> Disaster. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, generally speaking, yeah. Yeah. Well, this was a fantastic conversation. I'm so glad you guys were willing to do this. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.